Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Economics of Everything podcast with yours truly, Alex Vieira. Here at the Econ of Everything, we believe that economics in its purest form is the study of how people make decisions. Thus, our goal is to make our audience the most informed decision makers in all parts of their life. Today, we're going to be taking a look at a very interesting topic. I'm sure you've heard about China trying to take over the global reserve system. And I have some thoughts on that. We're going to touch about touch on some of those pros, some of those cons, and some of the challenges that they're going to be facing for them to be able to reach that global reserve status that the U.S. has been able to hold since the Bretton Woods Agreement back in 1940s. Now, to start off, what is the global reserve? Currency. The global reserve currency is the dollar that is being traded and that most banks hold in their bank accounts to be able to transact globally. But the U.S. dollar has been the global reserve since Bretton Woods, which established a peg of the U.S. dollar to an ounce of gold. I believe it was $35 per ounce of gold. And you could take your money and trade it for that gold at any time. The reason that that went off of the Bretton Woods standard is because the value of gold was going up and countries were trading in their dollars for gold and the U.S. dollar was getting squeezed. There wasn't enough currency in circulation to fill the demand of all the gold. So it was a whole squeezing process and then once the U.S. dollar finally de-pegged off of the gold standard, the dollar dropped in valuation about 10%. Keep that in mind for the future conversation we're going to be having about the China's yen. And so that's what happened back in 1970s when they went off the Bretton Woods Agreement. And the conversation was, which dollar should we use? Which currency should we use as the global reserve since we're not backing anything but gold anymore? And we landed on the U.S. because it had the longest history of stable prices. And that they have found is a cornerstone to the growth and sustainability of a nation. And so that was this thought process back in the 1970s and why the U.S. has been the global reserve currency over the last couple of years. There's also arguments for the whole petrodollar and because we're spending a, a lot of our currency is being used to buy and sell oil, then that helps establish that currency as well. But that is also, that's a side shoot of the fact that the U.S. had one of the longest reputations of low inflation and that reputation garnered its ability to position itself as the global reserve currency. So now we're looking at China trying to take that position. Let's, let's see what that means. Currently, the U.S. dollar holds 60% of all global reserves. There are other currencies being used as reserves at the moment the Japanese yen, the euro, and this whole slew of smaller currencies. And so it's not like the U.S. has a monopoly on the global reserve status, but it's just the most used currency in that place, covering 60% of all reserves being held in USD. How much is being held by the yen? Well, according to recent sources up to 2023, they're holding less, there's less than 2 to 3% of yen in the global reserve system. 
So personally, I'm not incredibly scared or off put by those numbers. When the US is holding 60% and the yen is at two to three, granted they're growing, but they have a large hurdle to jump to for them to be able to reach the global reserve status that the US has been able to establish. But why do you think the Chinese is trying to implement their yen as a more established global currency. Well, there's a whole bunch of thoughts on there and some experts may be arguing that because the Chinese is trying to implement their central bank digital currency, which allows for a lot more control over their population with direct uh, fees being removed from bank accounts. If you look up, there's people, the government can directly charge and remove funds funds from your WeChat account if you jaywalk, if you break the laws, using their cameras and their AI systems to discover who you are, link it to your account, link it to the fact that you jaywalked, and then snag that money from your WeChat account. By them implementing a central bank digital currency, that level of control would be more established, and it would be easier for them to implement that kind of monetary control, even going down to such a micro level of controlling which shops you can and can't buy in and really start locking up bank accounts. So you really start looking into the dystopian side of what happens if authoritarian country gets 100% of control of all monetary transactions, all money supply, and it becomes part of the conversation that we're seeing here in the United States. Money is a form of freedom of speech. And so if we can control the transaction and the flow of money, then we can control how people interpret and express their freedoms. And that's something that is really against the whole Chinese manifesto for being able to control and expand their population. Now, let's say hypothetically, the Chinese yen is able to break out of their marginal two to three percent. I mean, we do see they're getting contracts with Brazil, with Saudis, with Russia, the BRICS nations. They're getting they're getting starting to establish some trade contracts on the yen, which is an attempt to increase their position as a global reserve currency. But what happens if they are able to get call it twenty five percent of the global global reserve status? Well. When we look at the monetary policy of the Chinese government, they're in a very precarious situation. They are currently in the impossible trio. There's three aspects to monetary policy that is crucial that every single country really needs to decide what is important to them. That is capital flows, how much money can go in and out of your country and if you have control over that, price, and monetary policy. So you can only have two of these at any one point. So in this perfect trifecta, we have capital control, price control, and monet independent monetary policy. You're only allowed to have two of these at any given time. The US, we have independent monetary policy and free capital flow. In China, they have independent monetary policy and price control. So what that means for them is they have to be able to control the currency flows in and out of their country because that's how they set their prices. For them to be able to peg to the US dollar at 100 yen per dollar, which 
past presidents has argued that China has been doing predatory pricing with their currencies to make their exports more appealing to foreign markets and that's damaging towards uh, global trade. They do that by being able to manipulate the quantity of U.S. dollars or Chinese yens available in the market and that's how they put the brakes or the accelerators on that price level. And that's important for them. It's a, they're a very export-heavy nation, being able to maintain a low price yen to foreign currency value allows them to be more competitive with their, with their other nations, and this allows them for them to maintain large levels of growth. On the flip side though, for you to be able to maintain a currency peg, just like the Bretton Woods Agreement back in the US, you need to be able to have a sufficient amount of whatever currency you're pegging against to be able to maintain that peg. And so what happened in the US is we, people were converting their dollars for gold and we were running out of gold to be able to convert. And so that's why we had to break that peg because velocity theory of money, there's more money in the system than there is dollars in the system because money should be transacted 5, 10, 15 times and that makes $1 equal $15. So if every single person converted their $1 into gold, then you're taking money out of the system. With the Chinese market, they need to have sufficient USDs in their reserve, sufficient euros in their reserve, what other, whatever, what other currency they're pegging against, they need to have enough of that to be able to maintain that peg. Because if there is a sharp demand for yen, then they're able to, I mean, it's their currency, they can print more and keep that supply and demand curve stable. Or if demand for their yen drops, then they can buy it up themselves with their dollars in their reserves. The risk comes in when that foreign reserve of capital drops to zero and they are forced to depeg off of whatever currency they're currently pegged to. Remember, when the US dollar depegged from gold standard, we dropped 10% in currency valuation. If the Chinese yen were to depeg from the US dollar because there's increased capital flows, because it's a global currency and it's used as a global reserve currency, and to there's all these underground currency trading going on because the market value of the yen isn't the true value of the yen, then that would cause a repricing of their yen, which I'm not saying is happening now, is currently at risk of happening, but is a risk associated with taking that path in the impossible trio. And so that's some of the risks that I'm seeing from what happens if China becomes a global reserve currency? They have some some burdens, some hurdles to jump over on just like the general monetary policy framework thought process. But on a third note, the Chinese economy doesn't breathe safety to me. And that's part of the reason why even though we're seeing record high inflation in the U.S., we're seeing a SVB go underwater, we're seeing a whole bunch of market turbulence happening across the globe, the U.S. dollar is at an all-time high. And that's because the U.S. dollar is a safe haven asset. It's a it's It falls back to the reason why the U.S. dollar became the 
global reserve currency in the first place because it is reliable. They have a history of stable prices. The, mon the Federal Reserve has historically been able to keep inflation down and not be influenced by fiscal policy, by election cycles, by private sector demands asking for higher stock market prices. Because if they are able to keep their dual mandate of price stability and unemployment with price stability being a key, key factor, then that's a success to the Federal Reserve. It's not price stability and stock market goes boom. That's not in there. It's, it might be a, a portion of the conversation that they have while they're deciding where to go. But the real conversation is, is our currency a safe haven asset? And then when we look at China, first of all, the data that they're offering foreign investors is ambiguous and unreliable at best. And that forces a lot of people who would be buying into the yen, who would be investing into the Chinese stock market, who would be investing in Chinese real estate, if you could own any, are put off by the fact that there isn't clear data on how is their financial sector? Are they able, are they managing their shadow banking? Are all of the banks currently making loans well liquidated? Well liquidated. Are they over leveraged? Are the private companies in China in a stable position? With a lot of data coming from China being skewed, not displayed, undocumented, unreported, it becomes very difficult to break that veil of, of security and to be able to invest a large portion of your own capital or a, glo a country's global reserve capital into that system. Because if China and those cracks that may be starting to appear starts to grow bigger and starts to tumble, then what happens to your reserve in your bank? It's, you're a, it, call it Brazil, you're a Federal Reserve, your job is to maintain stability in your nation, but if the 25%, it's not, again, it's two to three, if 25% of your reserve is yen, and their whole country goes kaput, then you just lost 25% of your bank's assets. That's going against your personal self-interest. And so, that's, the, the third piece that I really want to touch on is China yen, the Chinese yen isn't a safe haven asset. It's, it isn't an asset that people go into. If anything, you know, we're, we stop seeing the 10% growth from the Chinese market. Their, their population has started to plateau. The Looking at some of the indicators that I've been able to see through, their real estate market is showing some dangers. Their banking market is showing some dangers, and a lot of signs are pointing towards a weaker China than is publicly known. Think about the Berlin Wall. Back when we finally took down Soviet Russia, we broke down Berlin Wall, and we had East and West Germany come back. We really saw how East Germany and West Germany differed on a economic viability perspective where where the free the the capitally free west germany using western capital standards capitalist standards was 
flourishing, had good jobs. And while the East Germany on the other side of the wall was portraying all of the same data in their data sets, when the wall came down and reporters were able to walk in, you could see the deterioration in their building, the lower qualities of their assets, the, the poverty in their population. And those are all symptoms of an authoritarian government coming in and overly restricting their markets, overly restricting their people, and overly restricting their currencies. So to conclude, I think there is a lot of things going on in the world right now. And while the headlines of China taking over the global reserve currency is jarring, it really catches your eye, it gives you something to talk about at the dinner table. Looking at the pieces required for a country to be able to run a global currency, a global reserve currency, you really start to see that there is still a lot of growth for this developing nation to be able to reach the establishment and the structure needed for it to be able to support a global reserve currency. China is recently moved out of the developing nation standards, is now moving into, has now been a developed nation, even though they might get some of those protections still. And as China starts to transition from this more authoritarian government and technology and innovations in the payment systems with all of the different crypto technologies, it's starting to push freedom into their local population. It's hard to control a nation when they have access to the internet, when they can have their own currency, when they can talk to people from across the globe and get different perspectives, when they see their brothers, their neighbors, their comrades from the United States being able to grow, invest in their kids, move up financially, and own real estate, own stocks, own assets that the government has nothing to do with, you start to question, what's going on in my country? Why don't I have the ability to own real estate? Why don't I have the ability to buy and invest in a company in my own country that isn't 50% owned by the government? Why must I use WeChat where I know that you have a majority control over every single transaction. You read my texts, you read my messages, you know where I am, you track my position. And so all of these, all of these mechanisms for control that China's been implementing for their population really starts getting revealed in this global world that we're entering where Earth isn't as big as it used to be. So those are my thoughts. The US dollar is likely going to continue to be a strong reserve currency for the foreseeable future. I think there's a lot of innovation in the dollar system and the currency system. And as we evolve and as technology improves, we're going to start seeing some new central bank digital currencies being implemented and being spread worldwide. But until then, keep your eye out. Always take a look at the bigger picture. And remember, econ of everything, our interest is in your future value.